shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS. Well, here it is. Once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalero, and coming to us live, I guess he's always live, he doesn't sound it, but he is always live, from the historic Black Hills in Deadwood, South Dakota, our good friend, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man. I'm uh, having having fun on my, my little business slash vacation trip, and it's uh, um, we're gonna we're gonna go hit Wyoming today and see what see what's happening. I'm going to tell you, there's probably nothing happening in Wyoming. But let me let me say to you this, I dude, mean, I would move to Wyoming in a heartbeat. Would you really? I mean, it's beautiful country, beautiful country. That's that's it. You know, I'm enough of a hermit that I don't have to have neighbors. Uh, the only thing that's keeping me in Louisiana is 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 uh, Nancy, and of course, we don't have neighbors to speak of in Louisiana either. But she's much more social than I am. Right. right. Uh, so when you think about how much you travel in a year, I mean, because every time, you, you know, we've been doing this for a lot of years now and you're constantly, I mean, do you have any idea how many miles you put on that truck of yours? Um, well, yeah, um, I, I'll put 30, 35,000 miles a year on my, on my truck, just commuting back and forth to work and doing my, my daily driving. Uh, it's nothing unusual at all for me to, to, uh, put 45 40,000 miles. Uh, we just bought, uh, a car for the business and, or we bought a car for the business last August. And, uh, we probably, uh, I think we've put a 38,000 miles on it. So, um, yeah, do a lot of driving, um, do a lot of flying. Uh, how the heck you could do it, man. I don't like driving from here to the corner store. I cannot stand driving but i do it anyway you are doing it but you know kelly i think that you know one of the things that we've talked about and one of the things that's big in our career field is you know community paramedicine and we've gone Mm -hmm. back and forth on the you know the the validity and how long is it going to be here and is it a flash in the pan is this the real future of ems and something happened this week i think was really kind of remarkable and this came out on uh you know october 31st and mobile integrated healthcare evaluation measures were released and these tools create the first set of standardized measures to evaluate benchmark publicly report the outcomes of EMS based MIH programs. And, you know, there's a great article on EMS one. Uh, it came out on the 31st of October, but I think that one of the things now that this is, is going to do is this is really going to bring, you know, community paramedicine into the light that everyone can kind of report on standards now and really kind of bring some weight to the work that we're doing within community paramedicine. And you, you may remember, Kelly, a, a, a few months back, seven or so months back, we had uh, Nick Nudell on, and we were talking mm-hmm. about the EMS Compass Program. Compass Project, yeah. And the EMS Compass Project is really trying to set standards for the EMS field that, again, we can report on the same measures. And, and the mobile integrated healthcare folks, and I have to tell you, I was part of this work group that helped develop these standards. I think this is really going to be a big leg up for the success of mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedicine. Yeah, I I, uh, I look forward to, to reading more about what people reporting their performance measures and, and such. And you know, you, you and I had mentioned before the show started uh, how um, EMS is is kind of hampered by the silo effect and the splintering of, of EMS programs. We've said before that uh, if you've seen one 
EMS agency, you've seen one EMS agency. They're so different. Uh, and, um, you know, Nick with the, with the compass project is, is at least trying to, uh, come up with, uh, some standardized performance measures. So you can, so when we're talking about EMS systems nationwide, we're comparing apples to apples. Uh, I'm happy to see MIH evaluation measures released so that, you know, when, when, the time comes, and it's and it's, and it's on its way already. Uh, when CMS starts to look at community uh, paramedicine and mobile integrated healthcare programs, uh, reimbursement wise, um, that we're actually comparing apples to apples, and we we know what uh, uh, what measures the success of a community paramedicine or a mobile integrated health program. You know, I mean, we that that's probably been. Uh, I don't know if you'll uh, agree with me. I, you rarely do, but I think that's one of the things that's kind of hampered the the growth of uh, of such programs nationwide uh, is because the the funding for it has always been somewhat ad hoc. You know, we're either using it as a loss mitigation measure to to keep our our frequent flyers and our our repeat customers out of the system and and, and not tax our system demand so much uh, in conjunction with with some sort of hospital support to keep their uh, their frequent flyers and their bounce back admissions that that cost them money uh, out of the hospital um, but that sort of thing that that sort of ad hoc patchwork funding model is not going to last us for long uh, we need to we need to hopefully see CMS uh, as a as a reimbursement model uh, for for uh, mobile integrated health uh, and maybe use that as the test bed to get away from this this uh, uh, fee for transport reimbursement model that that uh, really sucks for EMS as it is uh, hopefully mobile integrated health will prove that we can we can do a fee for service uh, reimbursement model and do that well uh, and maybe that that hopefully, uh, or my hope is that that will have broader implications for for how we are funded in the future. Yeah, and I think that we have no choice. I mean, we really have to get there. I mean, because right now, you know, we talk about um, you know the the current state that we're in. By the year yeah. 2018, uh, CMS wants all their payments, almost 90 percent of their payments, to be based on outcomes and uh, patient satisfaction. So when we think about that, you know, that's something that we're not prepared for. And, you know, you keep using the term fee-for-service, and I know it's just a matter of uh, nomenclature. But, you know, today in the world that we're in, we, we do bill for fee-for-service now. So we provide a service, we bill for it. Yes. But, but, in the, but, but I'm just trying, but to, I'm just trying to give you clarification. Is, yeah, yeah. So, but, but that service is wheels rolling. You know, that we, we're paid the lion's share of our money to take people to the hospital. Okay. And we know that... 70% of the people we take don't need to be there. Exactly right. Um, and, and, but if and we could, if that we could, has to change. If we can bill and treat them on scene, if we can treat them on exactly. scene, how many times? I mean, we're not getting paid for updrafts. We're not getting paid for D50s. We're not getting paid no. for bandaging someone's arm. But if we can do that, I think that there's going to be, but even more, if we could take people to an urgent care center as well, or if we can pick up the phone and call their primary care docs and say, Doc, I need you to see your patient today. There are systems that are making this happen. So when we go back to this article i think one of the things that's really important and this comes from um one of the key uh, um, the chair of the program for developing these standards uh was matt zavodsky our friend who yeah. uh, is at a med star in fort worth texas and by the way he is running for NAMT president uh, unopposed so he will be mm -hmm. the new president elect of NAMT come january which i think is going to be great for our career field so kudos yeah. to matt and i think we're going to see some really great uh, things come out of our national association 
that will really help the EMS career field. The new president in January will be a gentleman named Dennis Rowe. And then Matt, of course, is the president-elect, and he'll be in, in office a couple of years. So this is really my pitch to say to you, if you're not a mm-hmm. member of the National Association, uh, this Join is the time to get on board. Quickly. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, so Matt did a really great job of uh, hurting the cats and, and making all these measures happen. And in the article, it talks about that our goal in releasing these standards measures is for agencies, payers, accreditation organizations, and other stakeholders to evaluate program results more consistently. Now, one of the things that you mentioned, Kelly, was CMS. And, you know, that's where Medicare, Medicaid is where we get the primary, uh, um, you know, funding for our organizations and a lot of systems. When I was working at Christian Hospital in St. Louis, uh, we had about a 74% Medicaid, Medicare reimbursement. And, you know, we were relying on that. Which is actually pretty good. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. 70, your payer mix was 74%. Medicaid, Um, yeah, Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement. Yeah, I thought you were saying you actually got paid on 74% of what you billed. And I was like, holy Moses, that's great. I wish, man, we'd be rolling. (laughs) We'd be be stacking the dead presidents then. But one of the things that I think is important is we, we were thinking back in the old days of community paramedicine and, you know, 2009, there were four community paramedicine programs, you know, 2014, there were 168, you know, 2016, there's 287 and no two programs are the like. But now we're starting to think that is CMS really the future of, of, of um, is the future of reimbursement for EMS? And, and a lot of EMS agencies now are starting to say no. We need to get the heck away from it. Yeah, exactly. We are starting it, it to see. It may be bankrupt in another 10 years. You know? We are starting to see some incredible reimbursement that's coming from private payers because now uh you know i've been working with anthem blue cross blue shield here in st louis and we're starting to see private payers wanting to pay for community paramedicine another thing is our hospital partners our hospital partners are paying big money and they're giving us a cost share so what's happening is let's say you know they have a um let's say they have frequent flyers and they want to keep them out or 30-day readmissions they want to keep out you know, there are uh, hospital systems that are paying a enrollment fee of maybe a thousand dollars per patient to keep um, these people out of the ER for thirty days. Now, just because I give the EMS agency a thousand dollars, that's all they're going to get. So, if this person calls EMS a hundred times in that thirty-day period, the EMS agency is at risk for not getting any more money. But uh-huh. if we can keep them, Kelly, if we can keep them out of the ER for 30 days, some of That's those hospitals... That's $1,000 every month, yeah. Well, not every month, but some of those hospitals now at the end of the year are, are splitting their savings with us. So you can go for to real? a hospital... Yeah, so you can go to a hospital and say, look, if we help you save a million dollars... At the end of this year, we want 20% of that savings. And you know what they're saying? Where do we sign? Yeah. So, so when we think about the future of funding, um, that's really where we need to get to. But when we think about CMS, you know, the the task groups that have been going to Capitol Hill met with the you know the uh, CMS medical director, and basically what they're saying is we need to see at least a hundred thousand patients that have gone through this program before we even consider this type of funding. And I think that these, and I've been rambling, but I think that these measures here really Uh kind of give us the leg up to say, now everybody, and I think you said it before we started recording, it really goes into comparing apples to apples. Yeah, you know, and and we've said in this this podcast and and other industry leaders have said as well that we need to start diversifying our our reimbursement model because CMS uh, has proven itself to be... uh, 
um, less than than desirable, uh, and and quite often less than the cost of doing business. Um, and and it's it's gratifying to see that some of these hospitals are are actually you know splitting their their cost savings with us and and uh, and their reimbursement with us uh, uh, in, in return for our efforts. I think the nice thing about these standardized performance measures is that hospitals that are contemplating entering into a uh, support of a MIH program uh, are not going to have to reinvent the wheel. They'll see what other hospitals have done, what other uh, uh, MIH programs have done, and how they're structured and, and what their performance measures are, and they'll have some leg up in in setting up their own program. Uh, and as a result, you're, you're going to see less... Uh, uh, less variance in, in how these programs are set up should foster a little more continuity uh, in MIH programs nationwide. And, you know, when you, you mentioned uh, our, our elected officials need, what, 100,000 uh, patients through the system, uh, if we've got some standardized reporting, then uh, it doesn't have to be 100,000 patients through your system. <laughs> it can be, you know, systems nationwide, and we can all compile that data uh, and look at results and, and hopefully uh, change the way we do business in, in EMS and healthcare. Right. And I think that one of the things that, you know, we've got to look at is that, you know, we think about EMS as, as EMS a career field. And, you know, uh-huh. it seems, you know, we, we talk about being splintered or we talk about being in silos. And I think EMS in general is, is a, a, a career field. But I think what we're doing in, in Missouri and what we're doing in Louisiana and what we're doing in California and even in, in uh-huh. the states of what we're doing in St. Louis and what we're doing in St. Charles and what we're doing in Kansas City, a lot of those uh-huh. things are different. And because of that, we're not able to, you know, to, to you know, um, circle the wagons and really get that information that we need to prove our worth mm-hmm. in EMS. Because you said it yourself a few minutes ago where you said about 70%, and that's a good average, of the people that we take to the hospital don't need to go there. Well, if yeah. that's the case, why do we need to get reimbursed for the work that we're doing? You know, we put people on the stretcher, we roll the wheels, as you mentioned, we take them to the hospital, and then we get reimbursement. As I mentioned to you, in 2018, 90% of our reimbursement is going to be based on uh, patient outcomes and patient satisfaction. Yeah. So yeah. if that 70% doesn't need to go to the hospital, you think we're going to get reimbursement anymore? And the answer is going to be no. And if you're not, if you are not as an EMS agency – Thinking about MIH, community paramedicine, and, and finding alternative um, ways of funding, you are already behind the eight ball, and your system is going to have problems when it comes to getting the future of reimbursement. Well, yeah, and you know that it's really perverse uh, the the situation that we're in. What's really perverse is is that our reimbursement model from CMS uh, is is totally aimed at overtaxing a system already on the verge of collapse. You know, you know, our healthcare system's got some problems, uh, and, and it remains to be seen whether whether the Affordable Care Act is actually going to fix or or exacerbate those problems. Um, but we've known for years, perhaps even a generation now, that emergency departments are a huge money loser, that the emergency side of our healthcare system is hugely overtaxed, uh, overpriced, it costs more to run, uh, and, and what does CMS reimbursement as it stands now do? Does nothing but incentivize 
overtaxing that system right. uh, with the patients that we transport, um, and, and they're gonna we're gonna have to get away from that. Let me give you an um, example, Kelly. Let me give you an example of that before you go to your next thought. Yeah. So when you think about the Medicare budget, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, it's it's billions of dollars that is paid to the medical community, right? Mm-hmm. The EMS budget is is less than one percent of that overall spend. Yep. Okay. But again, because we're taking 70% of the people to the hospital that don't need to go, we're uh-huh. responsible for almost 24% of the downstream revenue. Now, what that means is um, CMS is only paying EMS uh, or Medicare is only paying EMS about 1% of their total budget. But uh-huh. because we're taking patients to the hospital, now they get a hospital charge, an EED charge. Now they uh-huh. get a professional component because the doctor has to bill. Now there's a lab fee. Now there's a radiology fee. Now there's a possible 23-hour soft admission that they're staying in the ED. Now there's possibly an admission that you know they don't have a support structure at home, so we've got to keep them here a couple days. So as we now start to bring people to the hospital that don't need to go, there is a lot of waste and there is a lot of, I think, setting up for fraudulent behavior oh, yeah. when it comes to getting people to these hospitals. And it's only a matter of time before CMS looks at the EMS career field to say, you are an incredible waste of money. Oh, not not just a, a matter of time. It's happening now. It's been happening for for quite a few years. Uh, they're just now starting to to uh, uh, contemplate doing something about it. You know, we have known for years that EMS transport, uh, even though it is only one percent of the Medicare reimbursement budget. Uh, also represents a disproportionately high percentage of their fraud claims um, and and I think they made that monster themselves. They incentivize taking people to the hospital uh, and they make the uh, they have for many years reimbursed at a, at a rate lower than the cost of actually doing business and for some some agencies to stay in business they the pressure is always to take someone to the hospital, take someone to the hospital um, and to transport. And and there are fraudulent operators who are willing to fudge the data and, and fudge stretcher certification uh, to keep the wheels rolling. And um, it's got to stop. I think uh, it would be better for us as a career field to figure out a way to, to uh, get away from that model uh, rather than having it forced on us. Because uh, uh, as we've seen in the past, uh, history has taught us that uh, the government solution to a problem is always a little more draconian than what we would have wished uh, on ourselves. Yeah. So, Kelly, let me ask you this question because, you know, I've kind of been on top of this topic now since 2009 mm-hmm. and – you know, in my business now as a consultant, I've gone around and helped EMS agencies, uh, about nine of them now, set up community paramedic programs. And But from the provider side, what do you think it ne- needs to happen, uh, whether it's locally, whether it's nationally, to really educate the provider? Because there are a lot of people, I think, providers that are on top of the future and what community paramedicine is going to look like. But I think that there's a lot of folks that may be listening to our show that do not have the background or the knowledge or really understanding of what it's all about. What do you think it takes to educate those people? Uh, the common refrain in our show is is uh, the things that we, we view as shortcomings in EMS education need to be integrated into the uh, curriculum. I don't, however, think that this is 
is one of those things. Now, I do think that that EMS curricula, uh, particularly paramedic curricula, needs to start taking a, a broader view of healthcare. Um, I've, I've long said that that our knowledge base is about ten feet wide and a hundred feet deep, uh, as compared to say the shallow lake that uh, that nursing education is, for example. But um, I, I do think that we need to to kind of take a more a broader primary care uh, approach to to uh, uh, educating ourselves in healthcare rather than the very narrow focus on on what to do in in the most critical ten ten minutes of a patient's uh, uh, encounter with the healthcare system. Now that we have a community paramedicine certification standard uh, and a standardized test, you're going to start to see many of the education programs start to tailor their curricula to to passing that test. So. Yeah, and I think that one of the things, and I'm gonna this is my last thought before I kick it to you to close, is there are two things that have always kept EMS agencies from moving forward. One is to say there's no reimbursement. Get, oh, out, yeah. of, get out of the mentality and stop thinking about that because there's money there. You've just got to know where to find it. Uh, if you're going to start an EMS, if you're going to start an MIH program, you want to give me a call. You know, I'm happy to give you my share my knowledge with you and uh, kind of guide you down the path. Number two, people will always say, "Well, wait a minute." You know, the the home health agency they're going to be up in arms because they're not going to they're mm-hmm. not going to like this. The fact that we're going to try to muscle in and take their business. You know, the argument with that is to say that we uh, are not there to take their business; we're there to fill in the gaps. But even more so now in 2017. Home health is going to get penalized for for readmissions, for high-risk readmissions. So what that means uh-huh. is they're going to need to partner with EMS agencies to keep these people out of the hospital. Because what happens is a home health uh, nurse is going to be in your coverage area. They're going to have a patient. I'm going to see Kelly Grayson, and I'm seeing him on a regular basis. Now at 9 o'clock at night, Kelly Grayson is going to call 911. We're going to respond there. We're going to take him to the hospital, and now the home health agencies are going to receive a penalty for readmission. And one of the things that we have to think about, and that's if they're going to be readmitted, just going to the ED doesn't necessarily mean readmission. But one Mm -hmm. of the things that we've got to do now is we've got to be able to partner with those agencies because they're going to look to us to say, let's keep these people out of the hospital. So the iron is hot right now, Kelly Grayson, and we've got to really start to move forward and build our community paramedic programs in 2017. I'm sure we're going to see a big jump of uh, programs that are developing definitely by 2018 and by 2020 i think we're going to be a career field and chris montera says this all the time we're going to be a career field that uh, is more of a public health agency that sometimes has to do ambulance calls yeah and and I look at that as a good thing. You know, we have uh, one of the problems with with uh, EMS has been uh, your your career path has been somewhat uh, narrowly defined, uh, and w- there's not a diversified uh, path to advancement uh, in EMS. You either go into education or you go into management and, and administration, uh, and not much else. Uh, but there, you know, there's still plenty of paramedics out there uh, that uh, have the fire and the belly to, to treat patients. Um, they just don't want to sit in an ambulance on a street corner for 12 hours at a time. <laughs> they would much rather, uh, and run emergencies in the wee hours of the night, they would much rather uh, um, do something like mobile integrated health. And you took the, the words out of my mouth earlier about the, the difference between home health and 
and mobile integrated healthcare uh, and community paramedicine is a, the the difference in focus. You know, a lot of the, the naysayers uh, against MIH uh, will tell you, you know, what do we do that that home health doesn't do? Uh, and the answer, skill set wise, is probably not all that different. But the focus in what we do is so so different. You've worked in the ambulance. You know what it's like. How, how, what is our normal interaction with home health care nurses? Um, if anything goes wrong, if anything is out of the norm uh, for their patient when they make their rounds, the default is call the ambulance, send them to the hospital. Um, and the whole thrust of, of uh, community paramedicine and mobile integrated health is the exact opposite of that. Let's see if we can keep these people well monitored, stabilized, uh, and and well regulated, and keep them out of the hospital. Um, and and to to achieve those goals, both of our goals, uh, we're going to have to collaborate and learn a little bit from each other on that regard. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Why don't you email us your concerns, comments, questions, suggestions, particularly about mobile integrated health and where you see it's going for our career field. Uh, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the advantages of it? Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>